All right. Okay. Well, anyway. So, I'm welcoming you on this 5th of July. I'm recording the podcast. You know, it is probably, as long as I remember to turn it on, it's probably the most reliable piece of technology. So if you ever miss class, the simplest way to catch up is just go to the podcast, listen to the podcast for that day, and you should be you should be good. Sometimes a video with Facebook is tricky. They get real. They told me last week that they were muting the video because some company called like TNT, I guess the network, Argentina, said I was using some of their stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, that isn't possible. <laughs> Have you lost your minds, people? What are you talking about? All I do is stand in front of a screen and talk. So, in any event, let's see. So we are here to talk about um, 1 Corinthians 7, a, a tricky chapter. It, it talks about marriage, engagement, um, divorce, uh, widowers and widows and just it's it's tricky so um, we'll 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 take our time today and go through it um, with some help from you know particularly Richard Hayes um, the Paul scholar so I think what I'm gonna do is just begin Patty do you have anything else today I, I know well John's doing his best if it doesn't ever go live I can't do anything okay so let's pray Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. We are grateful that we have the opportunity to come together like this as your people to study Paul's word. And we come today to a difficult chapter. It's just very, it's it's very, how could I, it's very, it's ambiguous because he knows what the other end of the conversation is and we don't. And that makes it a little bit difficult um, to make sense of. And we just pray today that you will help us to, to hear him well and to hear a message for us here, sitting here almost 2,000 years later. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, what I want to do as a lead into chapter 7 is to go back to chapter 6 and talk about that closing paragraph because I kind of did it a little bit quickly last week when we talked about the Holy Spirit. And I think it's important to, to, to come back here because it's one of those key moments that shapes certainly Paul's understanding of what God has done and should shape our own understanding of what God has done. Okay? So look, look at um, verse 18 of chapter 6. And I'll just start reading and we'll talk about it a little bit. I really hope if y'all have any questions about it, that now's the time to ask them. Flee from sexual immorality. We talked about that word last week. That's the pornea word. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Because remember, there's this big, long context in Corinth of the man having sex with his father's wife and the men in the house churches going to the temple prostitutes. So it's no wonder that Paul is, is focusing on sexual immorality, on this pornea, on treating other people as objects, particularly within a sexual context. Then he says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, 
who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, these, this word body, we probably misread because we live in a world where it separates our ideas of soul from our, our ideas of body, right? That's not how the Jews did this. For the Jews, that was you were a whole, integrated person. Body and soul, I guess you could say. And um, he, the Greek word for body, soma, same as the underwear store at Stonebriar Mall. Um, <laughs> I know these things. I don't know why I know these things. My wife used to work at Chico's. That's why I know these things. So <laughs> the word soma is larger than just your physical body. It is your whole self. It is your entire self. And, and what Paul is saying that is that God's Holy Spirit dwells in us as whole selves. It's not a call to be more fit or anything like that. It's to recognize that God is chosen. Just as he dwelt in the tabernacle and then dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem to dwell in the church body, universal, and to dwell in each individual believer. So there is never a time when you are without God. There is never a time when you can be apart from God, even if you want to be, <laughs> right? There may be times when you wished you could leave God behind somewhere, but no, God is with you. God's Holy Spirit dwells in you. And the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence in our lives, and in this case, in our persons. And then Paul says, you were bought for a price. Just contemplate that for a minute. You were bought with a price. We live in a time when people are very caught up with their autonomy and their rights and their self-determination and their ability to be whatever they want to be and all that kind of stuff. It's all about me, 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 and it's all just centered on whatever I the heck want to do. Where does all that stand when we stop and consider that we were bought for a price? That price being Jesus' death on a cross, that we were, we were bought out of sin, out of slavery to sin and death at a price, the most horrific price imaginable, a price I don't know that any of us would pay. I've often said many times, you know, I love you guys, but I wouldn't have any one of my three sons crucified for you. That's just the facts. But we were bought with a price. For me, it's always been one of the most... You have these moments in Scripture when you just kind of come to a stop. Why don't you just come to a stop? And you realize, I was bought with, at a price. And it just, it just, it just... It, for me, it's a, that, that moment is, is a big leap forward in the renewal and transformation of my, my mind, as Paul writes in Romans 12, so that I will know what the will of God is, what is pleasing and good. Um, it's, it's just a, it's a very powerful statement, and it should, it should begin to shape how we help us grasp that we are, upon coming to faith in Christ, different people. So you could, on a, 
on a whiteboard or on a slide, such as I would have had here, you would you could make two lists. So one list would say, let me look at my own slide. <laughs> we used to be, okay, so you'd have a, right? So we used to be, but now we are. We used to be, but now we are. That, that demarcation between those two lists for Paul should be for us is dramatic. It's big. Coming to faith in Christ, being born again, is not like a small little incremental change in your life. When you, you say, oh, I'm going to make a new, oh, it's a new year. You know, I'm, for the 34th time, I'm going to resolve to lose 10 pounds by March. Not that kind of thing. Not some small little incremental change that you're probably not going to do anyway. It's not some small little upward, ever upward, slowly increasing line on a graph. It is boom. Paul writes the, to the Corinthians in his second letter, what we call his second letter. If anyone is in Christ, boom, it's emphatic in the Greek, boom, new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, come boom. And we have to try to, to grasp that and hang on to that and live that and recognize the truth of it. They're not empty words. Boom! New creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And if you were to go up and you were to say to Paul, well, you know, Paul, you know, there's just lots of times I don't feel that way. I'm pretty confident, I'm pretty confident that he would take you by your shoulders, in love, look you in the eye, and he would say, I don't care what you feel. This is the truth. This is the truth. Act like it. Start acting like it and you'll feel the right, you'll feel what you want to feel. It's the truth, it's the truth, it's the truth. All the time in his letters, he's trying to get these early Christians to grasp what has happened in them. And he's and of course they don't have they don't have hardly anything to go on except what they experienced. Somehow they ended up in these house churches, perhaps shunned by their families shunned by customers if they were tradespeople, looked down on by their neighbors because they are hanging out with these weird Jesus people. Right? So... So Scott, when somebody says, a Christian says, I'm a work in progress, what does that say? A work in progress, I'll, I'll put it in a good orthodox way, okay? There are, the Christian faith is comprised of many ands. Okay? So let's pick a couple of the theological ones. God is three and one. Right? You don't pick. Well, you don't say to me, well, Scott, which is it? <laughs> it's an and. Jesus is fully God and fully human. Okay? Another and refer is about our, our salvation. That our salvation is both instantaneous in the sense that when I come to faith in Christ I am made right with God and it is worked out over time because Paul writes in the Ephesians work out your own salvation so um, um, the two words often used to talk about these is justification is an old word 
um, church word used to talk about that moment that you are made right with God and sanctification being made holy is used to talk about becoming more holy and that the key thing to grasp is that sanctification this becoming more holy this work in progress stuff is something you don't do alone why don't you do it alone why don't you do it alone because the Holy Spirit dwells in you you see it's a cooperative effort God works with you. you. You can't, Paul writes elsewhere, you can't just lay in a hammock, people, and wait for Jesus to come back. Get up, get going, get to work, right? So I don't really have a problem with people saying I'm a work in progress unless it is this. It's just a way to kind of fall back and say, I don't, you know, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay, yeah, yeah, as, as an excuse for hypocrisy, right? And we should be striving to be more Christ-like. I, I, I'm striving to be more Christ-like, even in my advanced years, striving, you know? Do I fall short? Well, of course I do. Do I say things I shouldn't say? Do I think things I really wish I hadn't thought? Yes, of course, we all do. But, less so now than once? Yeah, right? Okay, is that, that good enough? Okay, all right. So just mark out that paragraph right there, particularly that line about being bought at a price. It's just so, it's just, I, I, I use it a lot in my classes and my sermons because it's just, wow. And he means it to be, right? He means, he means it to bring them up short. You were bought for a price. He doesn't even have to name the price. They know what the price is. Yes. Yes. No, the Holy Spirit is only given to believers. It's when you come to faith in Christ, right? So, so it's, um, yes, it's a really good, there's a lot of ways we can get this thing wrong. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to those who have come to faith in Christ, who have been Born a second time, as Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3. Um, and that's why Jesus charges his disciples and us with going out, preaching the gospel, calling people in, making disciples, baptizing. So that circle of people who have been reborn is larger and larger. Um, N.T. Wright does a, has another great phrase when he talks about these house churches being colonies of a new human race, right? Be that, that God is planting in these places. Because Rome would plant colonies out in the further reaches of the empire. Now what would they be? Well, they would be typically um, populated with uh, veterans from the legions because that was something to do with them. Um, and they would be built along Roman city lines and they would be governed as Roman cities, but they were out there to extend the reach and so forth of the Roman Empire. So these house churches are colonies of a new, of a new human race. Okay? Anything else on that, anything else come to mind out of that paragraph? Okay, we are just about to hit chapter 7, verse 1. After a little introduction. 
Okay, because it's a challenge. So, my pad's gone. Okay, so, all righty. Okay, so you find the right sheet of paper here because I printed out. Fortunately, I printed out a few of these slides. Um, one second. So, Patty, just tell the online people that if we don't ever get it working, the best way to catch up for them today is the podcast. Okay. Well. Okay. All righty. Well, we'll take care of that later then. I don't know what to do. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know why it's not working. In case you're listening out there, in the great beyond, the best way to catch up is on the podcast, which I will get posted later today. I'm going to check the podcast recording before I embark on chapter 7 here, make sure it's all working good. Oh my gosh, it looks like it is. Okay. <laughs> you know, the podcast, we're like, we're like at 52,000 downloads in the last two and a half years. So, so, a lot of people, I don't know how all that happens, but a lot of things happen. Okay, chapter 7. It's about marriage widowhood, being engaged, um, divorce, a whole array of topics. And Paul, it, it is, Paul writes it because he is responding to specific issues being raised for him by the church in Corinth. It is not a treatise for all time on marriage on women, on sex, on men, none of that. He is responding to what he's asked to respond to. The difficulty is we don't have the other end of the conversation, okay? Um, for example, if you look at chapter 7, verse 1, here's how the NIV puts it. Now, for the matters you wrote about, quotation marks, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Close quotes. Over the history of the Christian church, that verse has been much, much abused. Paul is not saying, he's not against sex. How would we be fruitful and multiply if that were the case? That is something from them. They are writing to Paul, and they're saying, well, you know, basically we think this. You say, we say, we in Corinth, we say it is better. But that has a question mark at the end of it, or it should have. It's a, well, it has the quotation marks around it. That's how the trans, translators do it. If you don't have a version with the quotation marks around it, most of the newer ones do, okay, because... 
It was sent to him. Got yes. It. Okay. He would might be well it might be re rephrased. Um, it comes from the Corinthians, and the reason they're all caught up with this stuff is because they have this over spiritualized sense of themselves. So let me talk about one aspect of that. Almost all religions have an, have a very spiritual sect, a very spiritual, typically small portion um, of that community, whether you're talking in, about Islam, you're talking about Judaism, even in Christianity we have our mystics and other people who um, are very focused on the spiritual, early church fathers who who in their desire to get closer to God would move out to the desert away from everybody. And typically, when those people are doing that, they adopt a very ascetic lifestyle. Now, ascetic is not a word we use a lot, A-S-C-E-T-I-C, -E ascetic lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of deprivation. It might be food, it might be drink. It's denying yourself in Texas it would be air conditioning, <laughs> denying you all the things that you must have in order to survive, okay? <laughs> but almost always it has to do with sex because sex is such a powerful human drive, right? It's just such a, and, and so easily abused and um, turned from something good into something that, that can destroy even. And so the, the ascetics, these, these spiritual mystics, um, would, would move out and they would sort of forgo sex and stuff like that. That is where the Corinthians are finding themselves. There are some who think, okay, this Jesus stuff is great. We want to be super duper spiritual. And part of what it means to be super duper spiritual is we're going to forgo sex and that is making, that's creating havoc in their marriages, for example, okay? And so people are talking to Paul about it and writing to Paul about it and, it's, and, and he's going to provide some answers here and these are specific to the situation of the Corinthian Christians. As I said, it's not a general treatise about marriage for all time. I'm going to show you some places where um, Paul contradicts himself. Not doesn't contradict himself. That's not it. Because he's not laying down rules for all time. Lots of people think this about the Bible. Here's what the Bible is. I got these 66 books, all these pages of stuff. What I need to go do is to find in these 66 books all of the all of the all of the rules that transcend time. Right? All of the rules that transcend culture. You know, all, of, all of that. I need to find all of that in amongst all this other stuff that's in there. Well, that's not what the Bible is. The Bible's of 20, 66 writings, over half of which is stories. All of it's culturally conditioned. Paul isn't writing to, to us at St. Andrew direct in 2022, not directly. Right? We have to go back Try to understand what he's saying to these people 2,000 years ago and then, then see what we can bring forward to our day. Sometimes that's more, sometimes that's less. We're about next week, I think we'll be into chapter 8. You know what that's about? 
Should I or should I eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? Now that is not a question that typically confronts Patty and me. You know, <laughs> I wouldn't know how to find meat that's been sacrificed to idols. But even then, we can take that and we can translate it and kind of bring it forward to our world and try to hear something that Paul would want us to hear. Okay? So, in this passage, there is no trace of contempt for women or that marriage, sex within marriage, is sinful. Okay? Paul is an expansive person with the role of women in his ministry because we meet them. We meet Lydia and Phoebe and Chloe and, and Junia and the rest who play. His letter to the Romans is carried by not a guy, a woman. She's going to be the one assaulted with questions after question after question when she shows up with this massive letter from Paul. Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla, who's listed first when they're talking about her and her husband, which is wild. Probably because she is the one who is really, who is really taking the lead role in this Christian thing, including correcting Apollos. And of course, sexual intercourse within, within marriage can't be sinful. God tells the humans to do what? To be fruitful and multiply. How does that happen? You don't have to answer too directly. <laughs> right? How did, yeah. Because, because it does, it, it always has the possibility of creation. Now, if you're going to say it's only for procreation, I would say the Bible doesn't teach that. Okay? But it is necessary f for creation. Okay? Um, I know we have new technologies and things like that, but we can't ever lose touch with, with how this how this still works for 99.99% of people around the planet, okay? So, um, really, a lot of what happened in the Catholic Church was that in the, about, say, 400 AD with Augustine, Augustine had been a very, very wild young man. Very wild young man. And he had um, sworn off that life and embraced Christ. I see John walking away. That must be you mean the online people are viewing me. Yes, you're live, but that's, you're not oh, well, I can fix that in a second. Okay, hang on one second. And people remind me that I, I'm talking about... Okay, here we go. Yay! <laughs> okay. No, way to go, John. You know, I don't know what I don't know how, how these things break. Okay, so Augustine had this. He had, I think, it, this is my opinion. Because Augustine had been such a sexual profligate as a young man, that when he cleaned up his act, one of the things that he bequeathed the church, in addition to the many wonderful things he bequeathed the church was kind of a lot, kind of a, 
view of sex as being something kind of dirty and icky. That, that's what I, that's personally what I think it is. Um, it, it could have been a part of reaction to the over-sexualized pagan world that the church grew up in. That would, I think, to me, help explain some of it as well. But it is, it, it, it is a gift. It is a gift from God that is meant for what? Here's the challenge to our present-day culture in 2021. In the Bible, it's meant for the marriage bed, not elsewhere. Not elsewhere. And um, because, because it creates this, this, this one fleshness. We talked about that in chapter 6, that the men are going to the temple prostitutes and Paul's head is spitting off his shoulders because they're having sex with these prostitutes, not understanding that because of the one fleshness that is created with the prostitute, they're pulling the prostitute into the body of Christ. Now how, that is pretty darn foreign to the way people in our world understand human sexuality, I think. Um, human sexuality for our pets, <laughs> sex, you know, procreation for our pets, sexuality for our pets is one thing. For humans, it trans it's transcendent, it's mysterious. And when we lose sight of that, when we allow it to become something um, closer to the world of our pets or others, we lose so much. And we, I think, as a society, we suffer so much from that. So the only point is, it's easy to misread Paul without reading a chapter like this one carefully and understanding that he's responding to the Corinthians. So that's the third thing. What's the fourth thing on here? Paul's teachings demonstrate a remarkable vision of mutuality between men and women in the marriage relationship. We will see it today. We we'll see it every time I teach the household codes. It frustrates me to no end that so many people have trouble seeing this. And I think it stems from their ignorance of the world in which Paul was writing. In the world in which Paul was writing, the man, the husband, was everything. Everything. The center of everything. The wife had a small world. Her world was a portion of the home. That's it. How about the public portion of the home? We could have friends come over and we'd sit down and we'll chat and we'll have a eat fondue and stuff like that. Who's, who's, whose world was that? That was part of the man's world because everything public was the man's world. The man was in control of everything. The man could go around and have sex with anybody he wanted as long as it wasn't another man's wife because that man was her property, that woman was his property. With no, with no shame, no put stat, have anything. Anything and everything went except sex with another man's wife. And the women led quiet lives. We know that there was a time, this is not, you know, go, go back 150 years before Jesus in the Roman Empire. There were wealthy women who had inherited wealth from their dead husbands or fathers who were starting to put themselves out there and said, you know, coming, even speaking on the Senate floor saying, well, you guys are 
spending a lot of money on all these wars of yours and you're coming to us looking to pay for it. Guess what happened? That got shut down really quickly. <laughs> they just banned the women from the Senate floor, rich or not. So, so there is no sense in which a marriage in the first century was mutual. Utterly husband-dominated, utterly male-dominated. And um, uh, if we lose sight of that, we're not going we're, we're to read Paul well. Okay, what's the last one? Okay, so see, here's one. I'm with Richard Hayes on this. I believe that here in these letters, these early letters from the, what's this, 53 AD maybe, that they expect that Jesus is going to return really, really soon. I mean, it's been like 23 years now. It's a long time, but it's not that long a time. 23 years ago was, was about the time, remember all that Y2K mania? Yeah. <laughs> like the whole world was going to end overnight because the computers couldn't cope with it? Yeah, do you realize that was almost 23 years ago? That is the distance in time from Jesus' death and resurrection to Paul's letter. For me, at 71, doesn't seem like that long ago. Patty and I have been married for longer than that. I have kids who have lived for twice that long. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, so, yeah. It's, it's, um, does, I, I just think that in these New Testament letters you get this sense that part of what they're doing and saying is because they think Jesus is going to come back soon. Which means that when you start to get to later letters, what do you think would happen? Some of that would diminish, right? As 20 years have passed, 30 years have passed, 40 years have passed, 50 years have passed. In Mark, when we talk about divorce, Jesus simply says, no divorce. Very paragraph on the story. When you come to the identical passage in Matthew written a generation later, maybe 20 years later, what does Jesus, what, what's, what does Jesus say? No divorce, but in, except in the case of adultery. An accommodation is made. Why is an accommodation made? Because the church is trying to learn to live with the teachings of Jesus in a world that is still um, living between the times, right? That's that. That's the deal. Let me flip this thing around here. Did, did it flip for you, or is it only on my screen? Say like that the whole time. Did it go upside down? That's cool. I could, I could send you all on a real trip with that then if I start this thing spinning fast enough, right? So, <laughs> anyway, I don't even remember what I was talking about. So, so, so Richard Hayes thinks that yes, but Paul's writings are conditioned on his expectation, on Paul's and the other Christians' expectation that really the day of the Lord can't be that far away. N.T. Wright disagrees. He says, no, no, I don't, I don't see it that way. I don't think they, they think that way. And his, he has his own way of talking about some of this. But I, I'm personally, 
with Hayes myself on this one. So just keep that in mind. Again, it's very specific. Andy? Number five. Okay, I don't get the relationship between sex and marriage and belief that the Lord. But you will when we read it. Okay. You will when we read it in chapter seven. These are all setting up chapter seven because it is woefully misread, misused. Yes. Okay, I'm talking about the Greco-Roman world because that's the world the Corinthians are living in. They're not living in the world of Moses and the law of Moses and stuff. No, why would, why would Greeks follow the law of Moses? What? Okay, so let's imagine that you are a Greek person living in Corinth you might never have encountered a Jew in your whole life. Or let's just say you had. And you, had a, you actually managed to have a Jewish friend, which would be rare because the Jews would not eat with Gentiles. But let's just say somehow it happened. Okay? And you find out that they believe their God, their weird, you know, like he's the only God thing, that's weird, okay, gave them this list of rules to live by. Why would you think that as a Greek person you're committed, you're supposed to live by the rules given them by their God? He's not your God. You got your God. Your God is Zeus or Jupiter or whoever it is it might be. That, not, not this Jewish God. So they, did, so they didn't. But the Jews are the ones that are bringing Christianity along. Yeah, but he's doing it. He's doing it. Paul is doing it in a Gentile world. What? You know, I can't, I'm sure he does, but of course he has to be careful because the law, the time for the law had passed in the sense that nobody was going to be bound by that law because otherwise what they would find, the trap they would find themselves in is that all the Gentile men would have to be circumcised. Think how far the movement would get if all the grown Gentile men had to be circumcised. You think they're going to line up at the door to come in and... <laughs> You know better, Charlotte. You know better. That's not that's not, that's not reality. So, so I think that God, in and through Paul, is being quite practical here. And the time for the law had passed. Why had it passed? Because we have Jesus. You see, do you need? Do you need? Could there be a better sacrifice than Jesus? No. Could there be a better priest than Jesus? No. Everything reaches its fulfillment in Jesus. And um, so, no, I think that the, the challenge that Paul has is trying to, to talk to these Gentiles in the Greco-Roman world about Jesus and having them move from their Greco-Roman life to a life in Christ. And part of our life in Christ is that sex is reserved for marriage. Okay? And that's a big step. Part of moving to a Christian life is that there is mutual submission, one to each other, husband to wife and wife to husband. 
That's a big step for the men, big step for the husbands. Enough that you want your surprise. I'm surprised anybody. I, it can only be God at work to account for that. So, okay. Let's step into chapter 7, which I guess we're going to be in this week and next week. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, I, I'm sorry. Yes. See, I'm all thrown off my game today. So let's do, how about this? Ooh, which, how's that? Better? Cool. Now that I'm done with the slide. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave it up there so <laughs> we can talk about it some. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to help ourselves here with this. I just have a lot of papers today because I was trying to anticipate what a, what a, what a challenge this, this chapter can be. All right. Let's read, the, let's read through the first seven verses, and then I'm going to read to you Richard Hayes' expansion of the first seven verses. And, and just recognize, when I, the reason I'm using Richard Hayes is because he is one of the foremost scholars on Paul in the world, and he's, he's a United Methodist elder. There's nothing weird about him or anything like that, even though he and his wife did live in a commune for a while. Okay, <laughs> verse 7. So here is how it is in the NIV. Now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Okay? There's mutuality in this. They're, they both have their needs. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And right now, I know you're out there gasping and choking and all this kind of stuff. This is the kind of verse that's misused, right? But read onward, my friends. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. What's the point here? Mutual submission. That is the point. And I have to tell you, if it, when somebody was standing up reading this letter in Corinth and he says the wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband, you know what all the wives would be saying? Tell me something I don't know. <laughs> and then when it goes on it says, in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it over to his wife. Do you know what the husbands are saying? What the hell? <laughs> what are you talking about? That's not how it's supposed to be. I'm not kidding. I'm not, what's that commercial? I'm not kidding it. If we don't see these things, we, it's so easy to misread these things. This, okay? Do not deprive each other except, except perhaps by mutual consent. In other words, if you want to lay off for a while, <laughs> Paul's a practical man. If you want to lay off for a while, okay. And why is he talking about that? Because you see these Corinthians, there are people in these house churches who want to lay off forever because they're going to be spiritual and ascetic and they're going to rise to higher planes of understanding and existence if they forego 
you know, their favorite foods and sex and air conditioning and whatever else they're going to give up in this pursuit of the spiritual. And Paul's saying, no, no. It's why the great chapter on the resurrection of the body is at the end of this letter, not some other letters, not in Romans. It's at the end of this letter because that is the fundamental problem they have. They value the spiritual over the material, the spiritual over the physical manifestation of God's creation. God pronounced the physical world all good, and they have lost sight of that. Insects, like bugs. Bugs. Oh, well, maybe that would work. So do not deprive each other, except perhaps of a mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Fine. But then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, what does he say? I'm, I'm going to read the way Hayes would do this in, in, a, in a second, but yeah, what is he saying? Like, you do not think you're going to abstain forever because what's going to happen is one of you is going to give in. I hear myself somewhere. That's okay. Verse 6. He says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now that's pretty ambiguous. We don't know what gift he's talking about. He don't know what he means when he says, were as I am. We can make inferences about that, but it's pretty ambiguous. This is, you know, Richard Hayes again, one of the top Paul scholars in the world, said, look, a lot of these letters are not clear. They're not, they're parts of Paul's letters that are not even well written. That if he handed it to me, as a paper in my class, I would have to mark it up and mark them down. And you're saying, well, that's odd. This is God's word. It is God's word, but it's Paul's letter, right? It's Paul's letter. The book of Revelation, the Greek in the book of Revelation is very crude, very, you know, it would not pass muster in a Greek class. As my, sometimes my English papers didn't pass muster as they were trying to get me to diagram sentences. Wasn't that the most boring thing you ever did in your entire life? Do they do that anymore in school? Diagram, I'm sure it's gone. Those kids don't know how good they have it. Okay, so, so you can be looking at those verses and let me read to you. Because what he's done is he's gone back and kind of filled in some of the pieces that he thinks um, ex are from the Corinthians that Paul is expanding to and trying to to make it clearer what Paul means. Now that's that's that is a project fraught with difficulty, but he would be far better at it than most people I know, most scholars I know. So here's here's how Hayes did. He said, "Now I will respond to the matters about which you wrote." You propose that, for the sake of holiness and purity, married couples should abstain from sexual intercourse. As you say, it is a fine thing for a man not to touch a woman. But, since this is unrealistic, let each 
husband have sexual intercourse with his own wife and let each wife have the sexual intercourse with her own husband. Marriage creates a mutual obligation for a couple to satisfy one another's needs. Therefore, let the husband give the wife what he owes her and likewise let the wife give what she owes to her husband. For the wife doesn't rule her own body, the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not rule his own body, the wife dies. Don't deprive each one another unless you decide in harmony with one another to abstain from intercourse for a time so that both of you can devote yourselves to prayer. But when the time is up, come together again so that Satan will not tempt you. I am not commanding this practice of temporary abstinence. Rather, I am saying this as a concession to your proposal. That, that's this interaction that Hayes sees with the Corinthians. Paul doesn't see himself writing something from all time, for all time. It's just he's trying to deal with, with their needs. He's their pastor. Verse 7, I wish that everyone could be in control of sexual desire like me. Obviously, however, that is not the case. <laughs> Look at the world around you. But each person has his or own gift, charisma, in the Greek, from God. If not celibacy, then something else. One in one way, and another in some other way. Paul doesn't lift up celibacy against other gifts that are given. He does view himself as having the gift to be able to stay celibate. He isn't married. I was asked before class, what's the chance that he was a widower? Because there's a couple tantalizing hints here and there, but generally speaking, um, probably not. Probably not a widower. Um, probably never married. But um, Peter was, which Paul acknowledges. He, does, he never knocks Peter's marriage. He never says to Peter, oh, you should have, should have been married. That wasn't good. Um, God gives many gifts. They're all different sort of gifts. They're God gives people for all sorts of different reasons. So, okay. So, that's his advice to the married. His counsel to the married. Giving what they are asking him. Giving what they are saying to him. This is where he's trying to get them to is it necessarily the end goal that he will try to get them to? No, I, don't, I wouldn't even assume that. But under the right then, there, in that time, in that place, that's it. So, thoughts or questions on that? Okay, so let's look at verse 8. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Maybe some of them were under pressure in Corinth to get married. He isn't simply ordering people never to get married. Because of the time constraints, we won't look up a verse in 1 Timothy, but he writes in 1 Timothy, he says, get the younger women who are widowed to remarry. Right? That's what they should be doing, is remarrying. That would be a good thing. But I'm guessing that in Corinth, that the unmarried and the widows are being counseled by some of the house churches to not remarry. And Paul says, okay, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they can't control themselves, they should marry. 
for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Clearly, the man is very concerned about what's happening in the community, in these house churches. Remember where it began, for chapter 5, a man is having sex with his father's wife. Even in the Greco-Roman world, Charlotte, that is verboten, that is like, wow, way out there. That's what Paul is dealing with. And then he has to deal with the men who have come to Jesus and are now still heading off to the temple prostitutes. He's writing this within this over-sexualized world. You might say our world is over-sexualized, nothing compared to their world. Okay, so let's go on. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. Whoa, that'll bring you up, won't it? Hmm, you know, it's interesting that Paul does that. Sometimes he will say things, you know, it's kind of like he, he's riding along and he'll say, well, you know, this is, this is from me, not the Lord. And other times he will say something like this, this is from the Lord, not me. And you wonder like, what is he experiencing in that moment? What is, what is leading him to see the difference in them? And I, I don't know how, I don't know. But it's clearly something. So he says to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. He's talking about divorce within these house churches. And that follows Jesus in Mark, where Jesus simply, when he's asked about the rules of divorce by the Pharisees, he simply says no and sends them, and that's, that's it, without any exceptions, without anything. And like I said a few minutes ago, when you find the same passage, the parallel passage in Matthew, there is the exception for adultery. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, so what is the fundamental part of that? What is the fundamental view of Paul, the fundamental view of a Pharisee that drives that paragraph? Is he just making arbitrary rules up? Is it about taking care of the woman? It's about the one fleshness. When turn, let's go ahead and take the time. Turn to, I wrote a few of these down, if I can find them. Okay. Mark chapter 2, verse 10. I sure hope that's the right place. He's <laughs> a bit of a... Mark chapter 2, verse 10. Okay. Well, that is not the right place. <laughs> oh, crud. How about 12? Did I leave off a... I might have. Yeah. No. <laughs> We're going to go... Okay. 
All right. Well, I'll just have to talk about it because I wrote the wrong thing down here. Isn't that my... Oh, wait. No, no, no. I misread my own sheet. That is when you're really pathetic and old. You write your own stuff down on your own sheet and you misread your own sheet. Turn to Luke chapter 20. Keep going right. See this? Yeah. This is called... This is called tripping through the Bible. <laughs> Luke chapter 20. I just want you guys to see this for yourselves. It's supposed to me just telling you this. <laughs> it is my final answer. Luke 20, verse 34. Yes, I know it was. <laughs> I was, I, I, yeah. These other places are about a different topic. Okay, so he's been approached by some 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 um, Okay, just like never mind. Cuz that's not the that that's on marriage marriage in the kingdom. So when Jesus is asked about the rules of divorce, what he does when he finishes talking about it, is, is, quote, the end of Genesis chapter 2 about the one flesh. And if I hadn't missed, if, if I hadn't written down the wrong passage, I could find it for you on the fly, but I can't remember it on the fly. Yes? Okay. Denise may have bailed me out. What verse, Denise? Okay, yep, let's start at verse 5. Mark 10, verse 5. Yeehaw. This is what you call group Bible study, group think, the group Bible study. Okay. Verse 5. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law about divorce. Giving the, uh, uh, the law was that a Jewish man could divorce his wife by basically handing her a writ of divorce. But then he goes on. At the beginning of creation, God, quote, made them male and female, throwing you all the way back to Genesis 1. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, throwing you all the way back to Genesis 2. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Separate. Remember the old marriage vows that we, we used to use? that aren't used so much anymore. But the idea which carries over into 1 Corinthians is that... Um, the marriage of the husband and wife creates one flesh and that's just it just can't be undone it just can't be undone it creates this one fleshness and so but you see we are we are broken and sometimes very tragically so people and Our marriages 
do collapse for reasons other than adultery. But even then, look at Matthew. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I know, Andy's, I'm driving Andy out of his mind over there. But he's going to run. Yeah. Matthew, hang on one second. Okay. Matthew 19, verses 3 to 12. Matthew 19, we're started. Matthew 19, verse 4. This is what's called a parallel passage. And it comes from a time about 20 years after the Gospel of Mark. So this is Jesus speaking when the Pharisees again come to him wanting to talk about the rules of divorce. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Um, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Pharisees then asked, well, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not that way in, from the beginning. I tell you, this is the addition in Matthew, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. Probably that pornonia word under there from last week. Typically, it's, it used to be translated adultery. I would need to check that. And marries another woman, and marries another woman commits adultery because it's a violation of this one fleshness. That's the whole point. That's what drives Paul in 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 chapter seven of 1 Corinthians to say what he does. It's why in Ephesians five he says to the husbands, "You can't abuse your wives." Don't you understand that when you abuse your wives, you're abusing yourself because you and your wife are one flesh. And so Paul also sends the readers back to Genesis 1 and 2. This one fleshness is big for Jesus, for Paul. And um, we make accommodations, I understand. And every time I come to talking about this kind of topic over the last 20 years, people want to ask me about the rules of divorce. So Richard Hayes is a very wise man. He said, look, if we spend one-tenth of the time talking with our youth about the marriage of disciples, we'd probably have to spend a lot less time talking about the rules of divorce. That's, he says, that's what we need to talk about, the marriage of disciples. And um, he wrote, he, in one of his books, he has a beautiful um, marriage, part of his marriage homily for this young couple that he wrote about the marriage of disciples, about what it was entering into this. Because that's who Paul is talking to here, right? These are not just two random people off the street. This is not even a believer and an unbeliever. These are two disciples in these house churches. This is a marriage comprised of a husband who professes to have come to faith in Christ and a wife who has professed to come to faith in Christ. That's who he's speaking to in 1 Corinthians 7. 
um, to the, so again, at verse 10 in 1 Corinthians 7, and I'll just read it as maybe you make your way back there. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. Uh, hey, Paul certainly seems to be familiar with this thing from Jesus. Right? That we find in Mark, we find in Matthew. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband because whether they're living together or apart, they are one flesh. And a husband must not divorce his wife, dot, 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 because they are one flesh. So, so that um, changes a lot of the prerogatives, not only in the Jewish world where men could not just, they could get a divorce by writing out this writ, but also in the Greco-Roman world. Um, so it reshapes. There's a lot of all kinds of stuff talked about around, you know, marriage and, and all kinds of topics these days and sex and the rest of it. But it really begins with an understanding it should begin with an under, trying to come to an understanding of what human sexuality is all about. And it is larger than procreation. I haven't read a word about procreation yet. Paul hasn't said a word about procreation, um, but about the, this, the, this, this, this bond that is created. Um, I'll just say one last thing. Years ago, Patty and I watched a little special on TV about eighth graders, it was a special about eighth graders who were having sex. Yeah. So they interviewed them about this, this having sex. And to a person, including the boys, they admitted that it wasn't just nothing. That it created this lasting bond, this lasting something here. I remember this, there was this one boy who's sitting in that chair, chair being interviewed. He says, it, it, it created something between us. And I'm thinking, that is profound because it does. And if you are blind to it, that's sad. That's sad. This boy was not. Okay, so, do I have a few minutes left? Seven minutes. What can he do in seven minutes? Okay, so let's look at verse 12. Let's just keep going because now he's going to move to a different group. He says, now to the rest I say this, because now he's moving on from husbands and wives in these house churches. He's saying, I, not the Lord, if any brother, right, you know what I mean, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Right? So this is a husband who comes to Jesus and the wife has no interest. Paul says, don't divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce, divorce him. Mutuality, 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 mutuality. I don't think Paul could be clearer about this. And then he's going to explain himself. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been 
sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy that somewhere in that process of one fleshness and a marriage and a husband and a wife, that if the husband or the wife is a believer, I guess it's a little bit like the temple prostitute. The, the wife, the spouse, is pulled into this. And the children are pulled into this. And then he says in verse 15, But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother and sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Gosh, what a great verse that is. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Meaning, if you, if you up and drop him because he doesn't want to follow you to Jesus, how do you know that you, he, he won't come to Jesus through you? How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I mean, again, he writes it, he writes it both ways. He's careful to write it both ways. Everything he says to the husband, he says to the wife. Everything he says to the wife, he says to the husband. Um, in response to the questions that he is getting about, well, what about the unmarried? What about the marrieds? He's not done. He's getting questions about, you know, what they should do in light of the fact that maybe Jesus is going to come back soon and the rest, but we'll have to save that for next week. So, in closing, any final thoughts or questions? Yes. Andy. Yes. Why doesn't he just say his mother? Because it, it probably isn't his mother. So imagine this. So there's, there's a father and a son. The son's mother has died. Okay. The father has remarried. And the son is having sex. If it had been a mother, I imagine Paul would have, would have exploded off the planet, yeah. right, and be riding for Mars or something. Right, so so it's a, it's a, he explicitly says his father's wife. So so nobody nobody that I've read thinks it's his mother. It's his father's wife, which is also completely and utterly verboten. Because remember, a man can't have sex with another man's wife, even if it's your father. Scott, yes, we're living today in this world. Yes, fifty percent, and I may that's a wrong number. Maybe doesn't matter if it's Christian. Catholic or whatever, they're getting divorces. Yes, yes. What do we do? We help those who are coming up to understand what it means to be married as disciples. And we encourage them and strengthen them and help them. I never got any of this. I never got anything like that. That's, that's, what, that, that's what we have to do. That, that's the only way to change this. Is, is to recognize that, that, that the marriage of disciples, which is what Paul is talking about, that the marriage of disciples is, is different. And we have to find ways to help and encourage people in that. I'll give you one more thing. Sometimes divorce is celebrated. It should never be celebrated. It's always a tragedy. It should never be so. I, I'm, I am divorced myself. 
We could talk about how all that came to be. I'd rather not, but because uh, it's painful. It's painful still after all these years. But it's not something to be celebrated. Even even if you feel celebratory, you have to recognize it's filled with well, it's filled with sadness. Okay, so you have well, you have two disciples who are getting married. I married Lauren and Creighton Gerlach with Robert. And I got to give the homily. And you know what I did? I <laughs> they were sitting there on the altar, on the front part up there. And I gave them seven tips to go by. You know what one of them was? Will you pray together every night before you go to sleep? Every night. Don't miss one night. Every night before you go to sleep, pray together. I learned that from Patty. There are other things that we can do to help young Christians who are getting married to be married as disciples. We can help them Maybe if we're wise, we can help them make good, good choices about, about whom they marry, because that's, that's a problem as well. But that's a really super question. Hayes just says we spend so much time talking about divorce. If we spent a fraction of the time talking about the marriage of disciples, the church would be in a much better place. And I, I believe that. So when we come back next week, we're going to pick it up here. In chapter 7, at verse 17 or so, and we'll take it from there. I apologize that the online people only got part of today, but it's always available. The bet, the surest thing is the podcast. The video is tricky. Sometimes getting it from Facebook is tricky. That's why there's, last week's video was not up, because I, I, it won't download from Facebook, and I don't know why. So, But the podcast is as close to a sure thing as I have. So anyway, very good. All right, happy July 5th. Oh man, that means it's expense report time. <sighs> Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, help us to be people who appreciate, who appreciate marriage. We're not all married, some of us have been married. Some of us might never have been married. But marriage is important. And for those of us who are married, help us to come to a deeper understanding of what it means to be married as disciples and, 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 and to embrace ways to make sure that you are part of our marriage or to help our kids ensure that God is the trusted third in their marriage. Um, these, these, are, these are challenges um, for us all because we, we, we know what's, what the world is and we know how difficult it can be, but um, you call us to, this, to a life of happiness and joy and we are grateful for that. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.